Well, thank you again for uh, how generous you are as a church. Your giving is really encouraging. I'm hoping very soon not to know what you give, but right now I do. <laughs> so, um, if you have questions about the changeover, uh, we're giving through RUF, and now it's going to be uh, through our church more directly. Just ask me about it, and I'll get you set up with it. It's pretty self-explanatory on the website, but uh, please pipe up if you have questions. If you've been regularly giving through RUF, you need to change that over. So, just let me know if that's a problem. We're going to be in uh, Mark chapter 7. If you want to uh, turn there in the Bible, or you can follow along in the bulletin where the same text is printed. We all learned the name this week of uh, Angeli Rose Gomez, who was the mother at the uh, Uvalde school where the shootings were, who came to the school and was told uh, she couldn't be there, couldn't go in. Um, they handcuffed her to keep her from uh, going into the school because she had two sons in there. She got a local uh, policeman to persuade the federal marshal to undo her handcuffs. As soon as he did, uh, she bolted in when all of the well-armed and well-armored uh, law enforcement people weren't going in, went into the school, no thought of her own safety, got her two sons and brought them out. And uh, it was very inspiring and encouraging to see. It was a little frustrating that it had to happen, but she was a mother whose children were in danger and nothing was going to stop her. She was determined. She wasn't thinking at all about her own safety or anything. Uh, the passage that we're going to look at today in the Gospel of Mark is about another woman who was desperate for her children. Um, it's a woman who had a child who was demon-possessed, but um, showed the similar kind of self-forgetfulness and urgency in trying to get help for her child. And she showed this urgency in coming to Jesus when she wasn't supposed to, went where she wasn't supposed to go, but wasn't going to let anything stop her. And she has a commendable faith that we're supposed to emulate as well. As we look at this, we're going to think about though, how a connection to Jesus makes us at the same time both more humble and more bold. More humble and more bold. So let me pray for us, then we'll read the scripture. Father, uh, please come help us open our hearts to you and open our minds to you as we listen to your word. Uh, we pray that you would build in us uh, the fruit of a true faith in Jesus that would make us humble and bold at the same time. So come to help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This is Mark 7, beginning at verse 24. It says, Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek, born in Syrian Phoenicia, and she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it's not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And then he told her, for such a reply, you may go, the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying on the bed, and the demon gone. And this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Praise, Praise be to you, O Christ. We'll get back to the startling answer Jesus gave to her in a minute. 
It's not what you expected or wanted him to say to her, is it? <laughs> um, I used to live in North Alabama, right on I-65 between Birmingham and Nashville. And people inevitably from Indiana would call our church, uh, passing through town, and basically say, look, we're going to Indiana. I've run out of money. Can you give us gas money from the church? And I always thought, well, do people from Indiana plan poorly? Like, you started on a trip to Indiana without gas money? Like, what? It was always confusing to me. My friend Andrew lived about 30 miles south in Coleman, Alabama. And when people on I-65 would stop and find their church in the phone book, it was almost always to ask for a hotel room for the night. I don't know what difference the 30 miles made between the hotel room and the gas money, but in Coleman they wanted uh, hotels. And he told a story uh, in reference to this passage about three different people who called and asked for hotel rooms. And I think it shines a light for us. First person calls, uh, and it was more demanding. I need a hotel room for the night. Uh, you guys, can you provide it for me? And uh, my friend said, yeah, we can. Uh, we can put you up at the Economy Inn for tonight if... Uh, That'll work. And the guy says, well, I don't want to go to the Economy Inn. He says, I'm actually calling from the lobby of the Hampton Inn. I want to stay there. He said, I've really never stayed anywhere less than a Hampton Inn. <laughs> and, uh, oh, okay. Um, he was a little surprised and angry when my friend Andrew wouldn't help him. <laughs> um, and actually said, well, do you know of any other churches that I could call that might treat me with more respect? <laughs> so that's one story. Person two calls, and this guy doesn't even ask for a hotel room because he's too uh, embarrassed or despondent to get on the phone. He asks, he asks his wife to call. And she calls, and as she's telling kind of their story of what's going on, you've always, you've always got a story, um, he hears the guy in the background, he says, well, that your husband, put him on for a minute. And uh, he hears him saying, oh, I don't want to get on the phone. Says, she says, well, he can't come to the phone right now. And so Andrew said, well, um, when he can, have him call me back and I'll help you. He said he never heard from him. Third person was a woman who uh, said she was traveling with her elderly mother and her elderly mother was sick. And uh, he asked her some questions, you know, about what was going on and you know, kind of how they wound up in this spot. And he said, the more she talked, the more I realized how she got in this predicament. It was like one lifetime of bad decision after the other, just, you know... Um, pretty rough story and uh, but she said this she said pastor I've made some foolish decisions and I'm not living like I should right now but my mother's sick and I need you to help me with a hotel room for tonight and he said of course he helped her right. three different approaches that are a little bit like three different ways we tend to come to God with our needs and requests um Sometimes we're demanding. I feel like God owes me. I feel like it's my right to have my circumstances changed. And if God doesn't help me, it makes me angry. Right? Um, I prayed and he didn't do just what I said right when I wanted it. So I'm mad at him and I don't believe in God anymore. It doesn't work. I tried Christianity. It doesn't work. That's kind of the proud approach like the first guy asking for the Hampton Inn. Um, you know, then there's the despondent approach, which is the way you pray. Which is, uh, I'm not surprised God doesn't answer my prayers. You know, I, I'd be put out with me too if I was him. I wouldn't want to help me either. 
Um, I know my sins and failures, and he knows them better than I do. And of course, I might pray a little. I'll mention something, but I don't really expect him to do anything for me. Despondent approach. Um, Or you could pray like the third woman who needed the hotel room with the sick mother, and like this woman who came to Jesus, this Syrophoenician woman, Greek woman, um, who knows their need is great and don't have any really other means of meeting their need. She's got an urgent need because her daughter's sick. Um, She knows she's not worthy. She's not pretending to be worthy. She's not coming and reading her resume to Jesus saying these are the reasons you should help me. But she comes and she's bold even though she doesn't have any right to ask or any claim on him. And she says this, basically, I want you to help me not because of my goodness. I want you to help me because of your goodness. And that's basically the Christian magic right there in prayer. I'm coming to you, I want you to help me not because I deserve it. I'm coming to ask you because you're good and you're merciful. Not because I'm good, but because you're good. And that's what I want us to think about as we look at her story a little closely because this attitude made her both humble on one hand and then paradoxically very bold on the other hand. And that's how the gospel should uh, get under our skin and change us. So let's talk first about how the gospel makes us humble. Um, So in Mark, if you've been following along, I've been here in the previous weeks, Jesus has just left a big encounter with the religious experts, uh, kind of the self-righteous crowd, the good people and the religious conservatives, and had a long conversation with them about what it means to be clean. Right? He was saying it's not what happens externally that makes you clean or dirty. It's what's inside of you that makes you clean or dirty. Your problems come from your heart. And they leave and they go the only place they think they can get some rest, which is for the only time in his ministry, as far as we can tell, outside of the confines of geographic Israel. They go to Tyre, which is a pagan place. It's a Gentile place, like, you know, here. And for a Jew, everything about Tyre is gross and dirty. It's, it's ceremonially unclean. Like, the air is unclean, almost. But every, all the food, all the people, they're staying in a the house. They probably feel gross in the house, you know, because, you know, Gentiles stay there. It's dirty. They feel dirty there. Um, and here comes this woman. Um, she's... A woman, a Gentile, coming to a Jewish rabbi and 12 other Jewish men, they're radiating disapproval uh, to ask for help. And um, she's not supposed to do that. There's no rabbi that would receive a woman like this. But she's heard about Jesus, seems to know who he is, and is desperate for his help. And so she comes. She knows she's not clean by any of the by any of the standards the Jews would have, by any of the standards Jesus would have had, you know, she's she's an outsider to Israel. She's, you know, not a God-fearer. She doesn't have any religious credential. You know, ceremonially, she's excluded from all the worship of Israel, eats unclean food, everything going against her. I mean, apparently the, uh, the Jewish men would pray sometimes... Uh, and apparently pretty commonly, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a, Gent- not a slave, but not a Gentile, and not a woman. Yeah. Which I'm sure made them just fantastic to be around. But uh, she's not a slave, but she's a Gentile and a woman, and there's a gross factor for them there. 
Shouldn't be, but there is, generally. So, but she's desperate. Her daughter is demonized, which must be terrifying. Um, and she doesn't know what to do. So she comes to Jesus. And apparently he's just silent at first. Matthew says in his account of this that he was silent, but it says in verse 26, it says, she begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter, but it's a, it's a uh, tense that's ongoing. Right? She kept on begging him. So like begging once wasn't enough. She kept on on begging him to drive the demon out of her daughter, and he didn't answer her at first. And then when he did, it was what sounds like an awful answer. Right? It sounds racist, and it sure sounds mean. When he says, yeah, it's not right to give the children's food to the dogs. And Jews would call Gentiles dogs fairly regularly. Of course, diminutively, of course, racist. Um, they're not dogs like in Dewey, my little dog that's cute and runs the house, but like <laughs> more like rats. You know, they're feral and they're just going around scavenging. And wasn't nice to be called a dog, let's just say. And uh, what do you think of that? Didn't expect him to say that. Um, it'd be nice to have been able to see tone of voice and facial expression at this point, I think. Because Jesus obviously is turning this into a parable for his disciples. And it happens. He seems to read this woman pretty well and figure out uh, what he's dealing with because she enters into the parable as well when he says it. Um, but here are these disciples who just left the Pharisees in the discussion about what does it mean to be clean. And uh, here she comes. And he's pressing on her, basically saying, but you're not worthy. And the Pharisees, when he told them they weren't clean, they said, oh, yes, we are clean. How dare you? When he tells this woman that you're not clean, what does she say? Yeah, I know. But my daughter needs help. Right? I know. I'm not unaware right, of the situation I'm in, but I, I know who you are, and I got nowhere else to turn. And you feel like I'm, now there's a priority here. Jesus' uh, ministry was almost exclusively to Jewish people, and then at the end of his uh, earthly ministry, when he was ascending to heaven, he told his disciples, Now take the gospel to all the nations. That's wildly inclusive. But Jesus' ministry was focused on Israel itself. Um, but that's not the main thing that he's talking about here. The main thing he's doing is, is pointing out to his disciples, this is what it looks like. Like she gets it, and the religious conservatives of Israel don't get it. She knows she's not worthy. She's not coming to me because she's worthy. She's coming to me because of me, not because of her. Because she knows I'm good and I'm merciful. And this is um, the lesson for the disciples. And she enters into it. You see how she responds. She doesn't say, Dog! Well, look, I ain't got much, but I got my self respect. And you can't call me a dog. I don't have to take that off of you. Nobody calls me a dog. She didn't do that. She didn't come in pride. She didn't come in despondency. She didn't hear him say, uh, you know, the children eat first, not the dogs. And say, well, that's what I figured. I'm, 
I'm sorry, I'll leave. I, I mean, I should have known. I just, it's going to take a chance. Which is despondency. Uh, humility is not self-loathing. Right? It's not, you know, just going to the shame chamber and staying there all the time. But it's an honest evaluation of yourself before God. And in this case, she's saying, I don't have any claim on you. I don't have any worthiness to present to you. I don't have a way to make a deal with you. I, I'm not coming because of who I am and what I have. I'm coming because of who you are and what I need. That's because of who you are. And that's what she does. Um, so this is kind of a key to the whole Christian enterprise. You only enter the kingdom when you feel and know in your bones that you have no right to be here. You get that? You only enter the kingdom of Jesus when you feel and know in your bones that you have no right to be there. When you, there's nothing that recommends me to Jesus. It's only His grace that brings me into a relationship with Him or makes me expect Him to do anything good for me. It's only His gift. It's only mercy. It's nothing that I've accomplished or done or promised to do in the future. It's not, I don't ask because of my goodness. I ask because of His goodness. And that's what the Syrophoenician woman teaches us here. I feel like after she left, Jesus kind of looked at his disciples and said, See? <laughs> that's what I've been saying. She gets it. I don't think the disciples got it because you know they keep making errors on this point all the way up to the crucifixion of Jesus. You know, they still are not cluing in very well to it. Um, but eventually they're going to clue into the idea. If you think that you are morally fit, you're not. If you think you're morally and religiously clean, you're not. If you were, you wouldn't need Jesus. Uh, but as it is, you need Jesus, the Holy Son of God, to come and go to the cross and die in your place uh, so that you can receive the grace of God. Uh, because you're not okay. Morally and spiritually, none of us is. So this message is always hard on good Christian people. Right? It was hard on good Jewish people at the time. Uh, when you think, gosh, I try hard. I, I, I actually work hard at trying to read the Bible and pray and go to church and give money and do all the things I'm supposed to do as a Christian. And a lot of people don't try at all. And it's hard not to feel like I'm at least a little superior to them. And just like in Jesus' day, religious people tripped over that because they started being proud of what they've done, even just a little, even if just in comparison. And uh, it's also a hard message for the, the uh, yard side, yard sign crowd. You know, in my neighborhood, there are a fair number of yard signs. It's not like Portland or something, but, um, you know, we in my house have the right view of immigration and racism and climate change, and happy for you to know it. And I think the good intention of the signs is we'd like other people to to care about this too, but it's hard not to feel like it's a little bit of a brag, you know. Um, we're the good people who care about these issues and are on the right side of it. Um, and in as much as you start thinking that, even if you're right, especially if you're right about being right, it makes it hard for you to feel your need to Jesus, right? Because you want to you want to bargain with Him if you're a good person. Uh, if you're not a good person, you're ready just to accept His gift. And that's where you're supposed to be. Right? So, gospel is supposed to make you humble that way. You don't go on the basis of anything in you, just in Him. But it also is supposed to make you bold. And it's kind of funny that humility would make you bold. But you see it in this woman's case. It sure does. 
Like, she's got all kind of nerve. She barges in these 12 Jewish men. She's not supposed to be there. Uh, Rabbi, you can tell the disciples are probably creeped out about it. And she can tell that. But she goes right up, falls at Jesus' feet, and starts begging him. Now, like, that takes some boldness slash desperation for her to do this. But uh, you can tell she's at her wit's end, and she got no other hope. So here she is, confident not that she deserves his help, but confident that he's the Lord, as she calls him. In Matthew's account, he says, she calls him, You're the Lord, the Son of David. Like, she's cluing in that he's the Messiah. Even as a total outsider to, to the faith. And she figures, if anybody can help, it's him. And so she comes and asks for his help. She thinks he's kind to the unworthy. And she's right. He is kind to the unworthy. Right? Her humility, not thinking that she has any right to be there, but seems to make her more bold. Because she's not worrying about her appearance or... Um, decorum or anything like that because she's given up on that. She doesn't have any of that. She just needs help. And so there she is. Bold as can be. Humble as can be. Bold as can be. And if she wasn't humble, she wouldn't have been able to be bold when Jesus was silent to her. He's not saying anything. Uh-oh. This isn't going well. I should leave. No, she keeps begging. And then when he speaks to her, he speaks harshly and points out her unworthiness. She doesn't slink away and say, yes, I know, I should be better. Maybe when I clean my life up, I'll come ask you again. No, she just keeps begging. It's like, I know, I know. I'm dog, okay, that's fine. I know I got nothing to offer, but I need your help. And it's that humility that gives her boldness to keep begging, to keep pulling on him. And saying, God can help me. She wrestles with God. Like we read about Jacob wrestling with God in the Old Testament reading. Jacob, who was about to meet his brother Esau that he defrauded earlier in his life and was expecting Esau to probably kill him and probably kill his family. And so that night he prays and he winds up and God condescends to do this strange wrestling match that, of course, he lets Jacob win. Um, but Jacob's name is then turned to Israel, which is our name as the people of God. Right? It's because you've striven with God and prevailed. He wrestled with God. She's wrestling with God in the same way. And it's weird for us. We don't like to wrestle with God. It feels presumptuous to us. It feels inappropriate to us to wrestle with God, but she does this. Um, and Jacob's faith is commendable, and her faith is commendable. But like, do you ever pray like, do you remember when um, Abraham saw that God was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah? And he prayed about it, asking God not to do it. And he said, if there's 50 righteous people there, would you spare the city? Yes. If there's 40 there, would you spare the city? Yes. If there's 30 there, do you ever pray anything like that? Like, almost like you're you're working at your prayer. You're not trying to get God, you're not trying to move a reluctant God to help you because you're irritating. That's not the idea here. You're not expecting that if you wrestle hard enough in prayer, you can get God to do what you want Him to do. That's not the point here either. 
But the point is, God invites us to engage with him this way. And to build our faith, he wants us to wrestle with him this way. And I just don't do it much. And I don't hear many people that I'm around do it much. We have polite prayers. Uh, we say decorous prayers that seem reverent and appropriate and deferential, but maybe not charged with the kind of humble boldness that comes from desperation and really believing that Jesus can help us. We're invited to wrestle with God when we pray. And uh, that's a little surprising to me. Uh, but we're also, we wrestle knowing this, God has given us His Son. He's not going to be stingy and withholding to us now. He's given us His Son. He's for us. So if He's being silent for a while, or if He seems to be even harsh in His answers for a while, we remember who He is. And we keep wrestling with Him. Keep begging Him. That's how we're supposed to do. Charles Spurgeon was a really famous preacher back when it didn't seem to ruin people to be famous preachers mm -hmm. uh, in Britain. And uh, he had gout. Bad. And there was no medicine for gout at the time, so you just, you know, suck it up, buttercup, wait till it quits hurting. It's terrible. And it was really debilitating and really excruciating for him, and it just made him miserable. And um, one day, it was just, he was at his wit's end. It hurt so bad. And he sent everybody who was with him out of the room and kind of got down to wrestle with God in prayer. And he said this, it's a little old English, but he says, you're my father, and I'm your child. As a father, you're tender and full of mercy. I couldn't bear to see my child suffer as you make me suffer. If I saw him tormented as I am, I'd do what I could to help him and put my arms under him to sustain him. Will you hide your face from me, my father? Will you still lay your heavy hand on me and not give me a smile from your countenance? You ever pray that way? I wouldn't treat my child this way. <laughs> That's basically what he said. said. No, no, no. That would be irreverent. Right? That would be disrespectful. I mustn't pray that way. But this is Spurgeon. I mean, if he can, we can. Um, <laughs> He said it got better. And uh, he never experienced the excruciating pain from it again after that. And uh, I don't know why that is. I know, I know God makes you wait a long time and beg a long time sometimes. Uh, but we're invited to pray that way. Uh, with the familiarity that comes from humility, not from arrogance. Right? A boldness that comes from humility. So, uh, sometimes our deference and respectfulness is just pride. Uh, we don't want to be abject seekers after mercy. We want to be you know, responsible people who also would appreciate some help from God. And you know, the Syrophoenician woman says, you know, forget all that noise. Um, you have nothing in you that makes you worthy your decorum, and your appropriateness. Uh, everything you need is because of him being good, not because of you being good. This woman's commemorated, as Nick Davis can verify, uh, our in-house Anglican. In the Book of Common Prayer, Thomas Cranmer's prayer of approach to communion. 
pray when you come to the Lord's table. Listen to this prayer. We do not presume to come to this thy table, O merciful Lord, trusting in our own righteousness, but in thy manifold and great mercies. We are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. But thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. So, we come to Jesus not because of our goodness, but because of His. Let's pray.